0: Well, we are studying the life of David, and uh, as uh, we do, I kind of want to backtrack a little bit and uh, uh, remind you where we've been in case you've maybe missed a week or two here or there. Um, But last week, we were in 1 Samuel 24 and 26, so you may notice that between 24 and 26 is 25. Thank you. Got one person who knows that 25 comes between 24 and 26. We skipped it because something happens in chapter 25 um, that makes us realize that David is actually human. Um, He has the same sinful tendencies that we have. Um, In fact, In 1 Samuel 25, there's a significant event that causes, and and part of this is is, uh, me a little bit reading into the situation, but it seems to be that it causes David to become impatient. Anybody ever become impatient? No? We're all super patient people? Um... Now, here's what happens with with, uh, this issue of becoming impatient. Um, Not always, but it depends on the situation, depends on the person and what's going on. But when you become impatient with God, you tend to lose hope and faith. It's a very, very dangerous place to be when you have come to a place in your heart where you are no longer sure that uh, God is going to fulfill his plan in your life, um, and uh, what's going on, and why is this happening to me, and uh, it should have been better than this, and uh, and so the situation is uh, verse 1, chapter 25, verse 1, Samuel has died, okay? Now, In chapter 24, what we learned was that David had the opportunity to kill Saul. Saul was the reigning king. David is the anointed king. Um, And God gives David the opportunity to make a decision. Uh, And so Saul goes into a cave where David and 600 of his men are hiding. Uh, And so he makes the choice not to kill Saul. Samuel um, is a very important figure in David's life and in the history of Israel. So here's what's going on with Samuel. If you don't know, I'll just catch you up a little bit about who he is. Samuel was probably the most important person of his day, okay? He was born of a supernatural uh, promise. Hannah, his mother, had been barren. She went into the tabernacle. She's praying, she's weeping because she can't have children, and there's this whole situation going on. And so uh, what happens is Eli, the high priest, sees her, and he (laughs) makes the uh, mistake of thinking that she's drunk, okay? And and whatever she's babbling about is because she's incoherently been intoxicated, okay? And so what happens is she's like, I'm not drunk, I'm just praying, and he gets embarrassed. This is my perception of it. And he gets embarrassed and he says, okay, whatever you're praying for, you can have. Okay, you just whatever you want. And she's like, well, I'm praying for a child. And he says, okay, by this time next year, you will have a baby. And so um, what she does is, because God promises her this baby, she says, if this happens, I will give this child to the Lord. And so time goes by, she gets pregnant, she has a baby, um, she weans her child, and then you know, typical, uh, you know, First Baptist fashion, dump the kid off and run. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. We don't do that. But so she she does leave this child, Samuel, at the temple uh, or at the tabernacle uh, with uh, Eli, this old overweight priest. This is what the Bible says. Just Okay, you raise him now. And so, so he raises uh, Samuel in uh, this setting where he is becoming a priest. Now, this is weird because uh, Samuel is not of the line of Levi or Aaron, but God makes an exception and allows him to become a priest. He becomes a priest. He starts to hear from the Lord. And many of you remember this story where he's, he's a little kid. He's sleeping, and he hears a voice calling his name, and he goes to Eli. like, what do you want? And Eli's like, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And so a couple of times he does that, and finally Eli's like, oh, it's the Lord. And so um, Samuel becomes a prophet. So he's a priest, he's a prophet, and then he becomes the judge of Israel. For his whole adult life, he's the judge of Israel until the time when Israel says, we want a king because your kids are um, they're kind of jerks, and uh, we don't want them to be our rulers." So they say, we want a king. So publicly, Samuel... Um, inaugurates Saul to be the king now after Saul is rejected and and uh, God has said I've chosen somebody who's a heart after my own heart then he goes and he finds David he anoints David privately okay and I say privately it's a ceremony with family some friends but a very small community it's not public and it needs to not be public because If Saul catches wind, then he's going to come after him, okay, which he ends up doing anyway. But he anoints David privately. David, fast forward a little bit, is now running for his life, and he has the opportunity to kill Saul, and he doesn't. And now Samuel dies, and here's just into the psychology of David a little bit, my perception of it how is David going to become king when the kingmaker, Samuel, is gone? Because a a throne does not pass from one family to another family. It goes from father to son. That's typical fashion. If there's no um, validity from Samuel, the prophet of God, the kingmaker, the priest, the judge, the one who who inaugurated Saul, and in in David's mind, needs to inaugurate David publicly to make a smooth transition. That's not possible now. Now in chapter 25, what happens is that David becomes um, impatient for God's plan, and and really, he loses hope. I had the opportunity to kill Saul. I didn't do it. Maybe I blew it. Maybe I, I ruined my chance. Maybe this whole thing is done, and God's all the things that I thought he was going to do, he's not going to do now, and I, I ruined my chances, and so um, he begins to lose faith, and when you lose faith, um, your, your choices uh, become uh, pretty selfish. You can do almost anything when you decide that God no longer cares about you and doesn't have a plan for you. Now it's just up to me, and so David's uh, tempted in chapter 25 to take matters into his own hands to create his own way, to do what for himself what he thinks God was promising to him, and he's no longer going to wait on God. Okay, and so that's where we find David in chapter 25. Let's stand. We're going to um, start in verse 4. First Samuel 25, starting in verse 4, says, David heard in the wilderness... Uh, that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David is, this is a southern area, okay? He is down near the Sinai Peninsula. Um, So it's going to mention Carmel in a minute, but it's not Mount Carmel that's up north. In case you're familiar with Israel's geography, it's down south. Um, And he's shearing sheep. David sent 10 of his young men uh, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now, your shepherds have been with us, and uh, we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand. To your servants and to your son david this is normal practice david is very familiar with sheep shearing. he was a shepherd he knows all the the customs that go along with this there should be a great celebration and a lot of hospitality at this time verse 9 when david's young men came they said all this to nabal in the name of david and then they waited and nabal answered david's servants who's david Who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I don't know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man, strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. About 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. And Father, I thank you for your word today, Lord, that uh, never shies away from telling us um, the, the hard things, not just uh, the great victories, but also the great uh, challenges and temptations, Lord, of uh, those who follow you. Uh, we know that uh, David had a significant calling on his life, uh, but Lord, you call each of us, to serve. You call each of us into a relationship. And Lord, we go through different kinds of battles and different kinds of temptations, but uh, we have similar uh, temptations, similar feelings, Lord, about it all. Lord, what do you, you want to do in our lives? How do, how do we fulfill all that you've called us to be and do? And Lord, can we wait on you? Will we patiently wait for your plan and your timing? Will we seek your will or will we try to get our own will? Father, today we pray for your Holy Spirit to take the truth of your word and, and the, um, the, the realities of, of David's life, Lord, and, and how they all worked out to understand how it works out in our own life, how to, how to pursue you even when it's hard, how to trust you even when at times are dark. And Father, we will, um, by your grace and by your mercy, uh, continue to have faith. So we do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I skipped over a little portion here that uh, basically identifies Nabal. Uh, Nabal, his name, uh, if you read through the story, you find out that it means fool. It means foolish. Now, you have to wonder what his parents were thinking. Um, And to name your child fool... Uh, is kind of an interesting thing because they knew the meaning and the power of names. You, you ever run into somebody whose, whose name means something and you're like, yeah, that absolutely identifies them. You ever see that happen? Um, my name means light bringer. So um, obviously names have a <laughs> significant prophetic uh, it's probably having to do with the glare that <laughs> God knew would, would uh, happen someday. But um, Nabal, you know, I'm, I'm sure what gives his family the benefit of the doubt that his name was probably a family name. It didn't mean fool necessarily historically, but it came to mean that in another, another language. But uh, with uh, Nabal, it actually rings true. Now, here's the thing about Nabal is that as you read through the description here, it says in verse 2 that the man was very rich. He was not just wealthy, okay, he was very rich. Uh, He had a lot of land, he had a lot of cattle, he had a lot of servants, he had a lot of wealth, he was just a very rich person. So that's important for us to understand because he has the capability to be generous and and to be hospitable, and he he doesn't want to be. Uh, because he's very selfish Uh, it's not about his circumstances it's about his character and and also it says that he um has a a wife that is very beautiful he also is a calebite um and i don't know if you guys know who caleb is let me uh just remind you of who caleb was um Caleb and Joshua were two of the 12 spies that went into the promised land to spy it out before the Israelites went in there To see if it was good land or where things were and how things were laid out And they go in Caleb and Joshua were the only two that came back with the report that said We can absolutely definitely go in here and conquer this land because not because we're so strong and they're so weak But because God is with us. They they had this tremendous faith and so Joshua and Caleb come back and give this report. Ten of the other spies say, we can't possibly go in here. Those people are huge. They're too powerful for us. They have fortified cities and, and all that. So we, if we go in there, they're going to kill us. And they convince all the Israelites uh, to reject the promised land that they'd been released from Egypt and gone through dry land on the, through the Red Sea to go and conquer they, they reject that. They say, oh, no, we can't possibly. God won't be with us. He's been with us all this time, but he won't be with us when we go in here. And Joshua and Caleb say, no, we can do this. So they're about 40-ish years old at, when they go in as spies into, into Israel, into Canaan. They come back with this report. For 40 years, they're going to go through the wilderness, wandering with all the Israelites. That entire generation, 20 years old and older, they all die Okay? Joshua and Caleb are the only two from their generation who survived the wilderness wandering and then get to go into the promised land and help take it over. So that's significant. Okay, To be a, a Calebite is kind of a significant thing. Now, I love Caleb. He's one of my, I would say, top five Bible characters. Okay, he's, he's, he's very significant in other ways. Um, Caleb... Has this other distinction that as he's about eighty-five years old, okay, God had blessed him with uh health and vitality, and um not just that, but also a great amount of faith and and just trust in God. Caleb wants a particular piece of land, okay, it's the hill country, uh, it's near the area where um, Nabal is from, okay, and he says, I want that piece of land if if uh Joshua, who's the leader of the people, would, would give it to him. Uh, it's not in anyone else's territory or inheritance, so he, he kind of wants it for himself. Well, they say, that's okay, but you have to understand it's filled with giants, okay? There are huge people there, and you're going to have to go and conquer them. And Caleb says, no problem. We'll go in there, kick their butts. It's easy. God's with us, so what's the big deal? And so they say, go ahead. You want it, you take it. And so Caleb, at 85 years old, goes into this giant infested area and conquers it, takes it over for his family, his inheritance. He's, he's one of these just monumental figures that uh, has, has, he's wholeheartedly trusting the Lord. Nabal has wealth. He has this great pedigree. It's kind of like um, if you were directly descendant from George Washington or something. Uh, it'd be like that. Like he's he's got this family that has a, a great name, a great reputation. He's got wealth. He's got land. He's got everything going for him. He's got a wonderful wife. You would think that all these things going for him that he would be a great person and yet he is a complete scoundrel. He, so he has everything that the world has to offer except character. and And here's... A quote, I just read this yesterday, but I thought, wow, that's really to the point. Um, If you have character, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. If you have character, nothing else matters. That was David's reality. And then the quote goes on, if you don't have character, nothing else matters. And that's the situation with Nabal. So David goes to him um, with a very simple request. Uh, we just want some, you know, something, a little hospitality. We've guarded your sheep. We've guarded your shepherds. David, again, he has a, a soft place in his heart for for shepherds, for for sheep shearing, for the whole process, for the whole deal. He loves this whole thing. This is how he grew up. It's what he loved. It's what he did. And he knows as king of Israel, the anointed king of Israel, that it is his responsibility to guard and protect and to do what he can to, to help safeguard his people. And these are his people. These are Israelite people. And so he, he puts his men as a wall around these people. He, he protects them for who knows how long. And then he just says, you know, while you're celebrating and you're doing all this and you're, you're, you're having feasts, um, would you remember us? You know, we're, we're just over here kind of Camping out in the, in the area and uh, Nabal's response. Now, Nabal's response is very interesting because it actually speaks exactly to his idea of who he is as a wealthy, um, prominently named, you know, his historically famous uh, family, um, and a person who has land, a person who has money has everything going for him, and who David is, okay, because he says, uh, who is David, like, and who's Jesse, like, your family is nothing, they come from nowhere, they're, they're not important, not like a Calebite would be, okay, you, you come from the tribe of Judah, which, remember a few weeks ago, we talked about all the shame, he's just bringing that back to mind, like, all the shame, and all the scorn that your family has, versus Nabal, who has all the, the prominence. Uh, you have, who are the servants? They're breaking away from their masters. He's saying, basically, you have no land, okay? And, and the fact that David has no property, he has no inheritance, is a very important thing, because what that means is that God is, is, uh, is not blessing David. David is camping. David is wandering. David is fleeing. He is a fugitive from the law. He doesn't have a place that is his own. In Israel, uh, your standing with God is directly related to the inheritance of the land that you owned. Okay, it was very important to them that you had a property. Because that means that the God of of the land of Israel is the God that you worship. Well, when you don't have land, then what God do you have to rely on? He's kind of calling David into question on all of that stuff. He has no money. He's poor. He's got no name. He's got no property. And here's Nabal, and he has all of that. And so David, again, gets impatient because God seemed to have promised him all those things, right? You're the king of Israel. You've been anointed. God is with you. God's going to fulfill all these things. You're not just going to uh, own a little piece of property. You're going to rule over the whole thing. Your name is going to be the name that carries on forever. That there, You will never cease to have someone on the throne of Israel. All these things, and, and where, what's, what's it getting him? Samuel has died. He missed his chance to take over the kingship, over the throne. Is God still working? And so this is how this works in in our lives, is that we begin to question uh, whether or not God is still working in our lives because our expectations aren't being met. Um, I thought God was going to take away my stress. I thought that if you were a Christian, um, then you wouldn't have problems like that. Like, why, why is this thing happening to me? Why is, why is my marriage falling apart? Why is my health falling apart? Why am I not getting the promotion that I, that I should get? Why am I having financial struggles? Why am I having emotional struggles? Why am I having sin issues still in my life? I thought all this stuff would be taken care of. And what happens for a lot of people is even though we read the Bible and we believe the Bible, uh, we stop believing that it actually is happening in our lives. And the impatience that begins to happen, okay, this sense of, God, where are you? You lose hope and you lose faith, and there are two ways that that this basically works out in your life. One is to be passive or to despair or to be hopeless or to be, what I would say, sad. Um, You continue to believe in God, but you stop pursuing him. You continue to go to church, but it's just kind of, you're going through the motions. Well, I'm supposed to show up, so I keep showing up. You maybe read your Bible, but you're not getting anything out of it. It's just, I I need to do this because I'm supposed to do this. I was raised that you read the Bible. Uh, You pray, but your prayers are getting shorter and shorter, and there's no connection with God. It's just like, yes, God, please do this, 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 but I don't feel anything. And there's this sense of just, well, you know, I'm going to keep doing this because I want to go to heaven. Um, and there's a sadness and a despair that kind of fills a lot of Christians' hearts because we're just impatient with God to do what we think that he should be doing. Now, the danger of that, I mean, that, that is dangerous in itself, but the danger of that is that it continues on in some people's lives to the point where now they stop going to church. And, we, and we're annoyed by people who are joyful, <laughs> and uh, we don't get where other people seem to be you know uh, so filled with faith and and so excited about God and we're like well, uh, what's the point what's he's not doing that in my life and maybe even a little jealous and a little angry that other people seem to be getting what we think that we deserve and so we start to fall away from church life start to fall away from reading scripture because you know i I know what's in here do I really have to read this every day And prayer time just becomes less and less and less until it's non-existent. And then is there a relationship with God at all? And I believe in God. And you catch up with people five, ten years down the road, and they have wandered so far away from God because it's just like they gave up hope. And, And some of you have been there. Some of you are actually finally coming back from that place where despair kind of had set in and faith, and you're starting to regain a little bit of of sense of God is still at work. Amen. And uh, I can't give up yet. I can't give up now, and I'm not going to, and I'm going to keep pursuing God. And as I do that, he's starting to quicken your heart and, and restore a little bit of that hope and that faith. Well, that's one side of it. The other side of it, though, is what David experiences, which is um, he's angry. He's angry that all the things that God had seemed to promise him are just not happening. Like, where's God in all this? God does not seem to be active, so I'm just going to do what I want to do. And here's how this seems to work in some people's lives. Um, Some people do not recognize God's goodness in their life, and so they doubt that God will judge them. I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but here's how a lot of people begin to respond to God in this way. Um, God is not involved. He's not going to do anything. He's not going to do anything good. He's not going to do anything bad. Um, So I'm just going to do what I want, and I'll just catch up with God at the end. Okay? Um, it, It gives people permission to sin because they begin to believe that God's not going to judge them on the spot. He's just not going to kill me for that. So I'm just going to do what I want. And they seem to kind of get away with stuff, right, for a while. But here's, here's what we all know, whether we admit it or not, is that your sin has built-in consequences. There's, there's just a little bit of truth in this whole idea, Just a little bit of truth, which is that God is so merciful that He doesn't judge you on the spot. And that's a good thing. How many of us would still be here if God judged you on the spot? I wouldn't have made it through childhood. (laughs) And so, but the other part of it is that your sin has built in consequences. He doesn't have to judge you on the spot. He just let you feel the consequence and the weight and the destruction and the sabotage that sin just creates all by itself. And in order for that to take effect, what happens is that um, the hope and the idea is that it will draw you back to God. Because at some point you realize that what I'm doing isn't working. It's just, it's, undermining my, my purpose. It's undermining who I am, who I want to be. And at some point I, I need to come back to faith. Um, and by the grace of God, if you're here, if you're listening, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, you felt the weight of, of the consequence of your own sin, God is saying, I can still forgive that. I can still redeem that. I can still change the course of your life, but you got to come back. Amen. So now we insert here um, mercy. David is about to, listen, I guess I didn't say this part. David is about to murder a whole household of his subjects. All the men in this household is what it says. In fact, um, this is not my interpretation. This is the literal, uh, if you were to actually... Uh, translate the word. Every male in the house. Mean, it literally means everyone who urinates uh, at a wall, or who pees standing up. That's what it. If that's what the Bible says, we cleaned it up for you. Every male is going to be murdered by David and his men because of an insult. How many of you know that an insult is not a capital crime? How many? people on Facebook would be put to death, okay? Insults are not capital crimes. David is going to go in and he's going to kill every male. He has sworn an oath to God that he's going to do this by daybreak, okay? He's going to make a huge mistake. If he does that, he can no longer be king of Israel, cannot. He's going to take matters into his own hands. Well, Caleb, this Calebite, this Nabal, he has all this stuff. Well, I'll just take it. Why does he get to have all this stuff and I don't? I'm going to make it mine. That's what he's saying in his mind. Verse 18, Abigail made haste, took 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, five seahs of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs. And she says this. She falls down at his feet, verse 24, and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. So she takes a, a generous, but not overly generous, but enough for them to to have a nice meal, um, takes an offering to David, and she says, uh, I will incur the, the, the punishment on myself. Kill me. Don't kill all these other people. And this is mercy. Now, let me tell you how mercy works. There's, there's one of two ways generally that mercy works. One is that you don't get the punishment that you deserve. Anybody ever been there before? You ever uh, gone to uh, court and gotten court supervision instead of jail time? (laughs) Hallelujah. (laughs) It's mercy. That's just uh, God's, you know, God's grace, God's mercy saying you you deserve the worst, but I'm not going to give you the worst. When I was a teenager, 16 years old, um, within months of getting my driver's license, um, I had my first car totaling accident, um, and then a few months later, I had my second car totaling accident. Now, these two <laughs> accidents, um, neither was my fault, of course, and um, <laughs> but here, what happened was uh, going full speed. Okay, the speed limit about 55, 50, 50, 55 miles an hour. Okay in uh, both of these occasions, did not hit the brakes, I ran into two cars in two different occasions. Um, the cars that I was driving were both totaled, and the, both the cars that I hit were both totaled. Um, by God's grace, I walked away from both of those, virtually uninjured. The second time, I had a, I sprained my wrist. That was it. I... I that's not because i'm Superman, okay it's not because I deserve it. It's not because I was good. Um, I was lost in, in both of those occasions. I was not walking with the Lord uh, by God's mercy. I did not get killed or injured. you ever been there? I know some of you've been there you've you've had your own accidents and close calls, and i why did I dodge that bullet um, and you I don't know it's just mercy you can't plan on it. You can't count on it. You can't guarantee it. It's just by God's mercy, He just saves you from a, a consequence that, that you deserve. Um, that's one kind of mercy. And we have to praise God for that. When you get a mercy like that, you have to praise God. Second thing, though, sometimes God will intervene in your life to keep you from doing something stupid. You ever have that happen? Let me tell you this. If you are a saved believer today who knows Jesus Christ and, and believe that you're going to heaven, then that has happened in your life. Jesus Christ intervened in your life to keep you from a stupid mistake, which was to live your life with, apart from God. That's what that is. That's mercy. It's God saying, I care about you enough to declare to you that I will take the punishment that you deserve. That's mercy. Mercy was poured out on the cross. We call it grace, and it is grace, but it's also a a powerful picture of God's mercy. You're not getting the punishment that you deserve. God has intervened in your life. God has intervened in David's life on this occasion with Abigail. Because if he does not receive this great gift of mercy that she's come in to offer then he's going to ruin God's plan for his life. He will sabotage everything that God has told him that he would fulfill. David is the first step towards the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's important to God that David not blow it. Amen? He can still get his job done, but he's got to start over with somebody else. Here's what happens. David says to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Not, not eternal salvation, not what we're talking about here is the fact that uh, David was going to take for himself what he thought he deserved from God. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there uh, would not be left to Nabal so much as one male. You'll never read the word male (laughs) the same way again. Here's what we don't always tell you. In order for David to receive this mercy, he had to do two things. Number one, he had to humble himself. He had to agree with this woman, not to do the thing that he had committed to do. He had to humble himself. He had to see the wisdom in that and and the the power in that and the knowledge and the understanding of his mistake that he was about to make. That's a powerful thing. Humility is a a powerful thing. Remember last week I said humility uh, makes you basically um, impossibly invulnerable. I didn't say that. I don't know what I said. I said it It makes you invincible, right? Go back and watch the tape. (laughs) When David is humble, he's invincible. When he's prideful, he's about to destroy himself. He becomes humble at that moment. Now, here's the other thing. This is what we don't always tell you. It's going to cost David something. In order for David to accept this mercy... He's got to break an oath. He made an oath to God that he was going to kill every male in the house or else the same should be done to him. Okay? In order to break that oath, even though it's a bad oath, he's got to pay a price. He's got to give a sacrifice. He's got to make an offering to God. He's got to pay something for that. And here's what um, we always want you to know, that the gift of eternal life, the gift of salvation is free And it is the greatest thing that you'll ever do in your life to receive Jesus Christ. It will bring you peace with God. It will give you eternal life and the confidence of of heaven. The other thing, though, is that you do have to break. You have to break up with sin. You have to break with your past. You have to break with the the desires of your heart that that are wrong. You have to be willing to break some relationships. There are uh, people in your life that you're no longer going to be able to be close to. There are things that you're going to feel guilty about that you never felt guilty about before. You used to be able to do basically whatever you wanted before without really feeling bad about it. You know that? Drinking, drugging, sex, whatever. I mean, you... You didn't have a conscience about those things. It didn't matter because the Holy Spirit was not in you to convict your heart about it. You could get away with those things in your own mind. When you become a Christian, what happens is the Holy Spirit begins to convict your heart about those things and all the things, even the wrong thoughts that you have. And and the wrong feelings that you have, and and that word that you said that you shouldn't have said, and even the demeanor and the look that you gave that person that you shouldn't have given, you start to, you ever, you know what I'm talking about? Feel guilty, like, ah, I blew it. I'm not doing anything really, really bad, but you start feeling bad about even the little stuff. The more mature you get, the, the more you grow in your faith, the more even the little things start to bug you more and more and more it's a price that you pay and but it's a good thing that you have it cuz it's confirmation let me tell you this i don't want to scare you but if you don't have that sense of guilt about sin okay you're sitting here and you're like i don't know what you're talking about i do whatever i want and i never feel bad about it then listen you're lost you don't have the holy spirit you don't know the lord And you are headed for hell. I'm telling you, if you do die tonight, you would not be in the presence of the Lord, not in the way that you want. And it is your choice. You decide to humble yourself before the Lord and let Jesus intervene in your life. For whatever reason, here's what I'm telling you you have not been willing to pay that price to break up with sin too attractive, it's too addictive, it's too appealing, whatever. And you've said, I'm going to hold on to that, and I'll, I'll just settle up with God at the end. Listen, you do not want to settle up with God at the end. You want to do it now. By the grace and the power and the mercy of God, he intervened in David's life, and David received it, and he accepted the fact that he had to pay a price. And he was willing to do it. And what happened, and this is what happens, he confirms to David, he's still in control. He's still God. Verse 37, in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, okay, um, his wife told him these things. She just said, I went to David, I gave him these things, he accepted them. I mean, he should have been happy. Like, yeah, I was kind of stupid. I, you, know, you ever have that happen? You're like... Somebody does something for you in your best interest, and you're like, Yeah, I, I, was, I was being dumb. But he doesn't do that. Here's what he does his heart died. <laughs> He's so shocked, I guess, that his wife would do and go around him and do this. His heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. And David understood that God had confirmed to his heart in that moment that God still was on track. He was still coming through and he was going to do exactly what he had promised David. And David is going to live the rest of his life with this confirmation, God's in control. He's got it. I don't have to try to go get it for myself. I don't have to avenge myself. I don't, there are some, some pretty powerful insults that David is willing to take because he knows that it is God's to avenge and he will repay. The confirmation that you and I get, I don't know what God does to your heart to confirm you know, his work in your life. Uh, maybe even just like a moment like this, this morning, where God says, I've still got a plan for you. Whatever you're despairing about, whatever you're impatient about, whatever you're wishing I would do, I'm still in control. The world's getting dark, yeah, but I'm still making things happen. And as long as we're here and as long as we're trusting and as long as we're holding on to faith, God is still working in our lives and he's working through our lives to impact somebody else. Amen? We can't get impatient. We've got to do all the good we can do, but we've got to trust that God is working it out, and he will. And Father, we thank you. Thank you that you are still working things out. In your time, in our lives, You're not slow. You got a plan, and you're executing your plan perfectly. You invite us to be part of that plan. You invite us to to be an active member and participant, Lord, in all that you're doing. Help us not to desire the things of this world so much that we think that being part of your kingdom is a small thing. Help us not to want things for ourselves so much that we stop wanting you. And Lord, I pray that as you grow in in our hearts and our lives, Lord, that uh, people would see it. People would see the change, Lord, that our contentment, would be powerful, that our hope would be powerful, our joy would be contagious, our faith would be evident. Lord, we want to hold on to you for dear life. And I pray that we would today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I invite you this morning, as we always do, to come. Lay down at the altar anything that is preventing you from trusting God. And it may be an expectation that you've had that you've basically begun to distrust God because something's not happening in your life the way that you want it to. And you haven't been seeking his will and you haven't been asking what he wants. You've been telling God what you want him to do. And maybe today's the day you just say, God, I don't know what's going on with that thing. Would you, would you just show me your plan? Amen? If you are right now at a point where you know if you were to die tonight, you would not be with the Lord, and you want to receive him as your Lord and Savior, you want to change that right now, humbly accept Jesus' intervention in your life, would you come? Kneel at the altar for even just a moment and say, God, I want to be yours. If you need to talk to somebody about that, ask somebody some more questions, we'd love to talk to you about that. Grab me, grab Seth, grab anybody. Don't leave here today if that needs to happen, amen? Let's stand and sing.